Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again. A busy enough week. Um, In the last few minutes, Michael McGrath, the um, Minister for Public Expansion Reform, has been on radio basically suggesting that the budgetary package on September 27th will be greater than the $6.7 billion that was penciled in um, in early July when the summer economic statement was published. And he didn't give any real detail as to where this was going to go. I suspect... There will be a massive increase in social expenditure. I think there will be, you know, trying significant indexation of the tax system and so on. He's, he indicated, and I, I hope this is true, that many of the measures will be once off rather than becoming permanently embedded in expenditure or taxation. And uh, I think in, in that context, you know, every time we increase social welfare rates by 5%, 10% or 15% is what the various vested interest groups are looking for at the moment. Um, that becomes permanently embedded in the expenditure base because any government that turns around when cost of living pressure goes away, if it does, um, and and suggests that they will take back some of that increase um, will be met with absolute civil war. So I, I, I think the, the the focus on the budget in September 27th is going to be really interesting to see the balance between permanent measures and once off measures. I was on, I, I wrote um, a piece for the Irish Examiner on Monday of this week about Ireland's tax system based on the tax strategy group papers that we discussed last week. I elicited a, a, a lot of response, uh, pretty negative stuff from the left, as you might imagine, who firmly believed that 
the, the well-off in society don't pay anything like enough tax or don't pay a fair amount of tax. I did a radio debate interview with Paul Murphy, the People Before Profit TD, a couple of days ago on News Talk, uh, where we had this, you know, normal argy-bargy between left and right, I guess. Paul was just talking about that as a socialist, he wants to turn Ireland into a socialist utopia. And um, before I hand back to you, I'd just like to get you to think about, do you know any examples of socialist utopias around the world? But anyway, getting back to the Irish, I don't, getting back to the Irish situation, looking at the tax strategy group papers, there was an interesting point made in the social transfers paper. They were basically saying that social transfers in 2020 reduced the at-risk of poverty rate from 36.5% to 13.2%. Okay, and it has declined further in 2021 to 11.6%. We spend 23.3 billion on social protection in this country. That's roughly a third of what we're going to collect in taxation this year. And of course, that's before money is spent on anything else like health, education, and so on. So, you know, the people who are looking for a 15% increase in social transfers in budget 2023, I mean, what they're basically doing is ensuring that there will be a lot less money available for other public services like health, transport, education, and so on. So that there is a huge opportunity cost involved in these sorts of suggestions. Uh, but I think that the, the key point I'm making really is that the social transfer system in this country, the social protection system, is incredibly redistributory and has a huge impact on protecting those most at poverty within the country. And yet, the left are still not happy. Well, one might argue that they will never be happy. And I think there's a lot of evidence to support that assertion. There's various threads in what you've just said, Jim, that I could pick up on. Uh, you talked about fiscal measures, tax and expenditure measures that start out as being temporary, becoming permanent. Uh, that actually applies to income tax. William Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister of the UK, introduced income tax as a temporary measure to finance na the Napoleonic Wars back in, I think, the 1790s. I think income tax is still with us, despite it being a temporary measure introduced back then, at least as far as I I'm aware uh, income tax is still with us. So I believe, Chris, yeah. Yeah. The picture that you paint of people wanting to create a socialist utopia, I think we need, I think, to pick through some of the things that the left in, in all jurisdictions, not least Ireland, actually claim and ask, where's the evidence? What does the data tell us? What do we actually know? And indeed, what do we not know? In terms of my uh, sense of... Ireland's place in the world from being somebody that lived there for a long time, a, a regular visitor to the present day. And I'm aware both in terms of my where I live, where I visit, the data. Uh, Ireland is a pretty nice place. Um, it's one of the nicest places on earth, in my opinion, in which to live. That is not to say that it doesn't have problems. I would not describe it as a utopia at all. But I am doing really the relative calculation there, which is what a lot of us do when we start to answer these questions analytically, looking at the data, looking at the evidence, asking that question, what do we know? 
Well, let's start with what the left typically assert. There I go to the current Sinn Féin website, which is a curious construct because it seems to have an awful lot of stuff on it, some of which is hard to find, some of which is difficult to interpret, some of which looks very old, actually. It doesn't look to be a terribly well-maintained website, which is interesting for an organization that prides itself on its military-style organization, a prowess for keeping things well-organized. But the, the, there is a bit of the website that deals with fiscal policy, and there's a splash page that begins with the phrase, the words, our tax system is deeply unfair. Now, the first thing that one might ask at this point is, what do they mean by unfair? And nowhere is it actually stated what fair and or unfair mean. But the words go on, and they say that the unfairness, they use the word again, and indeed they use fair and unfair repeatedly. Language is important here. Um, Sinn Féin understand the importance of language and they beat us around the head with the words unfairness about the Irish tax system. They go on to say it's been made worse. So whatever it was, it has been made much worse by Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour. Interestingly, they're going back a while now since Labour last had its hands on the levers of fiscal power. And they go on about the old chestnut. They've made the the tax system unfair by introducing the universal social charge, the hated USC, property tax and water charges. Now, the last time I looked, Ireland didn't have any water charges. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim? No water charges, no. no. So this is a sense in which the website does look somewhat out of date. The attack on the USC is pure populism, because as an economist, you know, Jim, that it's actually quite a good tax. It's very progressive, raises a lot of money. Um, uh, and, all... and, most, and most importantly, it expands the base of the tax system very dramatically, which is really important. So economists, tax experts, finance types all agree the USC is a blooming good tax, actually. And it is not unfair. It's, it's, it may well, there may well be cases for reform. There may well be a case for integrating it better with the income tax, PAYE and other aspects of personal taxation. But uh, in the round, as a broad brush generalization, Sinn Féin are just wrong to say that the USC is unfair. So this speaks to the populist side of the debate, which is that they know that the USC is a deeply unpopular tax. I think that's partly because of its uh, birth, its genesis, was, of course, in the teeth of the financial crisis of just over a decade ago. And it generally was regarded as the tax that was introduced because of the bad behavior of bankers. And it it wouldn't have been necessary if the financial system, people in it hadn't blown us all up and all that very emotive stuff. Um, Correlation is not causation. The USC in some shape or form would exist today, um, even if we had not had a financial crisis. Not least because the data show social taxes in Ireland relative to the rest of the world, and I'll talk a lot about other things relative to the rest of the world, particularly rich countries, social taxes in Ireland are actually quite low. Um, But that's also true, or particularly true, for employer social taxes. And there are various wrinkles associated with that. So Sinn Féin, going back to what they say, let's let's try and keep it factual. Sinn Féin, and I'll quote again, wants a fair tax system, that word again, one in which all people and business pay their fair share. And that, of course, smacks you around the face again with the implication, direct implication, that we don't pay our fair share if we are 
um, people and businesses. Um, Sinn Féin want to scrap the family home tax. Now, spot the elision there. The property tax has suddenly become a family home tax, which of course is not. And again, they talk about water charges, which were abolished some time ago. We also want to increase the overall tax take in a fair and progressive manner. Now, they don't actually say why they want to increase the overall tax take. Again, some fiscal experts would agree that in the years ahead, Ireland is going to have to tax more as the population ages, as we need to spend more money on health and education and all the rest of it. But that's a debate. It isn't, it isn't necessarily a given. Language is important here. The, the multiple use of the word fairness, I think for the casual reader, would convince some, some of them that we all agree that the Irish tax system is grossly unfair. But of course, we don't, because we don't actually know what is meant by fairness. And the other word that is very important here is that they want to increase the overall tax take in a progressive manner. The implication there is that we don't have a progressive tax system. The OECD publish reams and reams of data on this stuff, tax. And I'll just tell you what they, I'll read out to you what they say about Ireland's tax system. This is a quote from the OECD. Ireland has the most progressive system of taxes and transfers of any OECD member. Taxation and transfers do more to reduce income inequality in Ireland than in any other member country. How do they know this? Well, they crunch the data. And here, you know, if we are being proper economists, we have to get into a debate about things like Gini coefficients, to use the jargon. There are lots of different ways of measuring inequality at the national level, or indeed at any level. The Gini coefficient is the most popular. It's not without its critics, it's not without its flaws, but it is the one that is most used. And we could talk for hours about what it actually means, and we, how it's calculated, what its pluses are, what its minuses are, but it is the most commonly used measure. So please, for the time being, just take it as read that this is a reasonably good measure of inequality. If the, if the Gini coefficient is zero, we all have the same income. If it's one, then one person in the country has all of the income and the rest of us have nothing. So the number is going to range between zero and one. And the nearer we are to zero, the more equal our society is. One of the most interesting things about the fairness of the tax system, which Sinn Féin thinks is very unfair, is the extent to which it reduces inequality. In a pre-tax, pre-welfare payments world, which of course we can measure, Ireland is indeed very, very unequal. Um, on the, that measure that I mentioned, the Gini coefficient, Ireland has a measure of 0.48 against a OECD average of 0.41. It's the same as the UK's, for instance. So in a pre-tax, pre-redistribution via welfare payments world, we're as unequal as the United Kingdom and also pretty much the United States. The tax system in Ireland and welfare system reduces that Gini coefficient from 0.48, according to the OECD, to 0.29, which compares to the OECD average of 0.31. So it makes us a better than OECD average country. There are some countries that have even better inequality measures than us, but uh, France doesn't. Denmark does. Denmark is perhaps the poster child for 
um, not so much lefties, but social democrats that say that that is the perfect country to live in. And it, ha it has a Gini coefficient of 0.27 compared to ours of 0.29 in that post-tax, post-redistribution world, which means that we are more unequal than Denmark, but not egregiously so. We're the same level of inequality as Germany. We have much better post-tax inequality, surprise, surprise, than the United States or the United Kingdom. And we're better than countries that are set up, often um, painted as great liberal democracies with a, with a decent welfare system, such as Canada. We're better than they are. So the numbers, I think, are quite unambiguous, which is that we are better than the Netherlands, Canada, Australia, Italy, and we're much less than even countries like New Zealand. So um, the numbers, I think, at, at that high level speak to a particular definition of fairness, which I think flies in the face of, of what Sinn Féin actually say. Now, I think this is the, probably the topic for a much bigger piece of work, perhaps a written piece of work by the two of us. And I'd be very interested to know if readers would be interested in, in a much deeper dive. But to, to give you a sense of the, the kind of data that is, is now out there and how it, somebody might, for example, manipulate the data and claim, despite what I've just said, that Ireland is unfair, they might look at tax as a proportion of GDP. That would be, I think, a classic lefty thing to do, which is in the OECD, taxation receipts as a proportion of GDP are about 33.5% OECD average. And Ireland currently takes as a proportion of GDP 20%. Now, you know where I'm going to go with this, don't you? You then have to get into, well, what the hell is GDP? Does it mean anything for Ireland? And you, Jim, have written and spoken about this at great length. And we then have to get into all of that stuff about GDP, why it's distorted in Ireland and why it's not a good measure when you're looking at this kind of thing. You, you have to get into, and just, just to prove that I've looked at it, um, GDP transformed into GNI star, which I know is, is, is one of your favorite measures. The difference these days is huge in Ireland. In 2020, the numbers for which I've managed to dug up, GDP in Ireland was about 372 billion euros. Was that, that sound about yeah, right? Yeah, that's correct. And GNI star was 208. Yeah. Um, it's, it's enormous. And it's yeah, all to do... In, in 2021, I think the gap was about 180 billion. Yeah. So we take off, we have to take take off net factor income to get to GNP. And then we have to take off depreciation of research and development and intellectual property, which is a huge one, 61 billion. We need to do all of that. So, and so what that means is that taxation as a proportion of GNI star is much nearer the OECD average if we did that figuring. But let's stick with the OECD numbers. Taxes on personal income, right? In terms of the proportion of total taxation, so this is moving away from the proportion of the economy, but just look at our total tax take. Taxes on personal income profits and corporate and capital gains taxes. This is OECD data where they clean up for national differences. So some of these numbers may not accord exactly with what you would expect to see. But in Ireland, um, on the latest data provided by the OECD, that's 32% of the total tax take. And the OECD averages that taxes on income um, in, in all of the other OECD amount to 23%. So out of the 38 countries in the OECD, we rank seventh highest in terms of the amount that we tax on income. And similarly on corporate profits, we, um, for the latest year that we have data, we are the eighth highest in terms of, the I suspect it might have even gone higher this year. Where we do not score well is on social security contributions. We're 30th out of 38. We take 17% of our 
tax take is from social security contributions like the the USC, um, and the average in the OECD is 26%. So there is there is a case to be made there if you want to be at the OECD average, for yeah, example. Yeah, so, so Chris, the quid pro quo for that is if you do lift the social security contributions significantly, as Sinn Féin are certainly talking about, um, the quid pro quo is that you actually reduce the income tax proportion to achieve the OECD average. Absolutely. I mean, if you want, if, if, if your definition of fairness, and I agree that it's, it's an if, is that you want to be at the world average or the, the, the rich country developed world average as a, as a benchmark for fairness, your taxes are, as a proportion of personal income need to come down from 32% of the total to 23%. That's massive tax cuts, not tax increases. Where we also don't score well is on our VAT receipts. We are 22nd and the, the, the way in which we tax uh, consumption and other forms of uh, indirect taxation we're about in the middle of the pack. Again, it looks to me as if this, this fairness thing, it doesn't stack up. There, there, there's lots more I could say here. I'm, I'm aware already that I've taken about two thirds of, of, of our allotted time for the podcast on, the, on this topic. But I do you, think you that it, it was worth a deep dive and is worth an even deeper dive, given just how much data is out there now, how little... I think is known about the data and I think a job of synthesis and pulling it all together to to just simply describe the facts if nothing else because there is so much nonsense talked about this so much abuse of the language Sinn Féin wants to abolish the family home tax but want to introduce a wealth tax now any cursory examination of the data will tell you well then you're just abolishing one tax and replacing it with essentially exactly the same tax Mm. Because all of the wealth in Ireland, despite the nonsense talked about all of the billionaires with all of the money getting away with murder, the wealth in Ireland is in property. Property, um, absolutely. So you, you can't have a wealth tax without, or a meaningful wealth tax without taxing the family home. So, um, and, and there's all that, that kind of stuff. So um, maybe we'll uh, have a deeper dive in a written piece on this, but I really don't think looking at it in the ways that... Um, I've looked at today, it stacks up. I think I think a lot of the messaging, a lot of the use of language, frankly, is pure populism. It's creating false belief, a false narrative, and therefore false promises that will not be honoured. You should never let the facts get in the way of a good story. And I think that's what you've just done there in the last um, 15 minutes or so. The, the, the reality that the people before profit um, people would argue that we don't pay enough income tax and secondly, that um, the poor suffer disproportionately because of VAT and indirect taxes. Okay, uh, but what they what they don't accept, of course, is that um, poor people spend a higher percentage of their income on food, and of course, food is VAT free. Okay, so uh, there's there's just so much rubbish spoken, and I guess it doesn't matter about people for profit because they're sort of stuck at about 2% in the opinion polls and will never move away from that because they have a very um, distinct support base, you know, that, that is never going to get any bigger. But I guess the Sinn Féin perspective is more serious because, as you know, Sinn Féin at 35% in the polls, the chances are Sinn Féin will be part of the next government and will probably lead the next government. I know it's a couple of years to go and anything can happen in the world of politics, but based on what we know at the moment, 
there is a fair chance. And yet Sinn Féin is spewing out this factually incorrect rubbish as well about the tax system and about the social welfare system. So um, it, it worries me. Um, and as somebody who has two sons living in this country and as somebody who wants to finish out their life in this country, it really does worry me about the sort of socialist utopia we might be cast into if these people get the levers of power. Chris, moving to your side of the REC, um, inflation in the UK yesterday, a 40-year high of 10.1%, the first country in the OECD to go, off, to go above 10%. It has been the eighth upward surprise in inflation in the last 10 months, um, and it comes on top of June data showing strong growth in earnings so this sets the Bank of England up, I think, for a 50 basis point rate increase on the 15th of September. But it's what's kind of interesting, I think, in the UK data breakdown is that some of those global forces are starting to diminish in terms of significance. So, for example, secondhand car price inflation fell to 8.6% from 15.2% the previous month. Okay, um, and and of course, energy prices are falling because of what's happening, global oil prices. But then what is happening in the UK is that it appears that the domestic drivers of inflation are starting to become more embedded in the system. So rent inflation, we'd love this in Ireland, but it's a jump from 3.2 to 3.8 percent. Services inflation jumped to 5.7%, which is the highest rate of service inflation in 30 years. So why, Chris, has the UK got such an incipient inflation problem at the moment? As you say, we have the highest rate of inflation in the G7 at the moment. I think we're the first major country to get into double-digit inflation. My answer is a very simple one. The difference between our rate of inflation and, say, the G7 average can be put down to one thing. I bet you can't guess what that one thing is, Jim. Brexit. We don't have a serious policy discussion in this country anymore. We're not immune from the populist plague. We're probably in the vanguard of the populist plague. And one of the things about populism that it worries me in the context of the discussion we've just had about Ireland and tax is that facts do not get in the way of a good story. Facts do not change people's minds. And when you talk about the economic facts in the UK, if you say that a significant chunk of the inflation difference between ourselves and the rest of the world is down to Brexit, um, and then you cite the facts, uh, people still don't believe it because the whole thing has gotten so tribal that you just support your team no matter how badly they're playing. That's the way it goes now. And I, I worry about you going that way in Ireland, that despite all of those facts about tax, people will say, don't care. Um, I support my team and my team is now Sinn Féin for some strange reason. Let me read out a headline from Bloomberg News just um, from earlier this week and see if we can start joining some dots about this inflation story. Uh, Because part of the inflation story this week, as you say, it wasn't about so much the international energy story, which is affecting everybody, but food prices were up more than they should have been in the UK. Food prices are up everywhere. We know why. But why is food inflation so much worse in the UK? Let me read out a headline to you. UK worker shortage leaves £60 million worth of food to rot in the fields. Now, let's start thinking about that. So if there is upward pressure on food prices, 
What are we doing plowing tens of millions of pounds worth of food stocks back into the fields because we don't have the workers? It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, hold, uh, hold on, Chris, but the UK has control of its borders again. Isn't that what matters? It clearly does. And again, let's look at let's look at the data. The data is that this is the one Brexit promise. If there is one Brexit promise that has been delivered on, it's been the immigration story in which people, there is now an open competition for uh, workers from overseas. If you score enough points, and that's to do with qualifications, there has to be a vacancy, and there's a minimum earnings floor uh, so that they are not allowed, for example, to bring in people um, below a certain wage level. And guess what? That means that immigration has actually risen since Brexit, but its source has changed. There's no immigration to speak of now from the European Union. There is a little bit, but compared to what it was, it is negligible. And most of the increased immigration is coming from South Asia, actually. Um, mostly from the old Commonwealth countries like India and other places like that, and which is great. People are always, well, in my view, welcome to come here. But the, the people that you want to go and pick crops in the fields aren't coming. The seasonal workers that used to come from Eastern Europe, for example, aren't coming, and they don't tick those scorecard boxes that are necessary for employers to legitimately get them into the country. So the crops go unpicked. And notwithstanding the fact that higher wages are in offer, it seems that people here don't want to do that kind of work at that kind of price. That, that's a, it's a free country. But don't ask the question, well, why are our food prices so much higher than everybody else's? I think the answer is, is at least but partly abundantly clear. There's so much wrong with the UK at the moment. The number of conversations I have with people who ask me the question, why is it that nothing seems to work anymore? And we look to, for example, we have water shortages all over the country. Despite the fact that this country gets plenty of rain the year round, we have a problem at the moment and there are water restrictions in vast swathes of England in particular. Not so much Wales because we, we get even more rain than you do, I think. You're obviously not paying your water staff enough. Well, the, the, the chief executive of, the, of one of the largest water companies, and they're all privatised in the UK, as I'm sure you know, uh, unlike in Ireland, um, if they're not publicly owned. The chief executive of, what, of the, I think the largest or one of the largest water companies over the last five years has been paid just over £14 million. Because he's worth it. I think it's a she actually, but um, she, that, sorry. That, that's just to be precise. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Um, the, and typically the chief executive of these, the, the chief executives of these water utilities earn between two and three million pounds a year. Now, that is an absolute nonsense. These are monopolies. Uh, they don't have to do very much other than provide water that comes out of the taps. It's not, there's not an awful lot of technological innovation, R&D, risk-taking, entrepreneurship. No, that doesn't really exist. The sort of things that you normally would reward capitalists for with that kind of money just isn't present in this industry. So there's a concept in, in economics, Jim, that you remember from your first year textbooks called economic rent. We're increasingly living in a rentier society here in the UK and indeed elsewhere, where people uh, through various guises are just simply extracting huge amounts of cash from the system and putting absolutely nothing back in. The water companies are an exact example of that. 
Listen, Chris, we have a publicly owned water company and it's not exactly a roaring success, not least because of the political opposition a few years back to the introduction of water charges. Our Irish Water, I saw a story in the Sunday Business Post a few weeks ago talking about the bonus pool for Irish Water staff this year. That is despite the fact, you know, there are huge, huge problems in terms of connecting up new housing developments and so on to water supplies. Uh, so we, we we live in a bit of a rentier um, economy here in this country as well. Can I just correct one point I made earlier? Some sharp person will pick up on it. I said that the UK was the first OECD country to go through the 10%. Of course, that's wrong. Um, I said that actually. No, you said a G7. Oh, I'm that's, so sorry. That's, sorry. that's what I should have said, G7 rather than OECD, because there are a number of other OECD countries that currently have inflation in excess of 10%. Chris, looking across the Atlantic at what's happening in the United States, um, I was struck this week by Liz Cheney's failure to win the Republican nomination for Congress uh, in Wyoming, and a pro-Trump person got the nomination. And uh, Liz Cheney made a fantastic speech afterwards, basically saying that she won the primary quite easily last time and she would have won it again this time if she had been prepared to come out come out and support the lies that Donald Trump was telling, particularly in relation to the um, last presidential election and the events of January 6th, 2021. And um, I, I, I just thought it was an amazingly honest interview from a politician who had just suffered a significant failure. Um, Apparently, she's now going to go back to base and see if she can take a run at the presidency in November 2024. So it's a fascinating story. And I, I think it continues to speak to the really malign influence that Trump continues to have on the US political system. And, you know, they've targeted any sort of moderate Republican people around the country. They've made sure that there's going to be a strong Trump-like candidate um, standing against him. And those Trump-like candidates seem to be winning most of the primaries at this stage. So it is a very frightening uh, spectacle, I think. Um, And I, I, I think it bodes very, very worryingly for the next presidential election. And uh, despite all of the reputational damage that's been done to Trump, um, not least because of the January 6th investigation, but also with uh, Mar-a-Lago being um, raided by the FBI. There's a great quote going around this week when he once said when Hillary Clinton was investigated by the FBI, that proves that she's crooked. And he said in relation to the FBI um, raiding, investigating him, he said that's a sign the FBI is crooked. Um, the double standards, but these clowns that, you know, support Trump buy into all of this stuff. It, it is quite extraordinary and, and certainly does worry me, I have to say, about the future of the United States. There's a lot to be worried about, Jim. And Trumpism, of course, has lots of resonance over here in the UK. Um, and I could talk about that at length, which I, you'll be pleased to know that I won't. But I think one of the ways in which our politics has been changed and Trump is perhaps one of, if not the prime example of this, is that we used to have leaders and politicians that generally speaking, when they were campaigning, they would talk all sorts of bollocks, make all sorts of nonsense promises. And the old cliche was that they would 
um, campaign in poetry and govern in prose. And that the realities of government would mean that their extreme promises and rhetoric of the campaign trail would be quietly forgotten and they get on and do something reasonable, decent, have some integrity and do things that were sometimes, occasionally right for the majority of people, for the country. I think the way in which our politics has changed on both sides of the Atlantic, and you can see that in the campaign, you can see the Trumpian elements of the campaign to be leader of the Conservative Party, the next British Prime Minister, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Um, the campaign is still, you know, can they're campaigning, making absolute nonsense promises about economics, uh, ignoring the realities of life on the ground, basically talking bollocks. And that's always been the case during campaigns. But I think the new aspect of politics is that that's now continued in government. That the rubbish that is spoken about on the campaign trail is now pursued with alacrity, um, with great due diligence when you're actually in power, with disastrous consequences uh, for all concerned. I think this trust is destined to uh, consign Boris Johnson to being the second worst prime minister in British history. The debate that's going on here about her is whether or not she will honour all of the things that she's been saying on the campaign trail. And if I'm right, she will. And that will include dire implications for Ireland, because not only will she continue the passage of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill through the House of Commons, but then once it is, has become law, she will use the levers of power that it gives her to renege on that protocol, and that will trigger a trade war with the European Union. She seems to be destined for that, with all of the implications both for trade and politics on the island of Ireland that you and I have spoken about a lot. So yeah, I think it's extremely worrying. There is a lot to be worried about. Um, and uh, all I can say is I search for reasons to be optimistic about the only place I can find it these days is the behavior of stock markets. But um, maybe they're just as crazy as we are. Maybe they're just as crazy as Trump. <laughs> yeah, Chris, another big story that we haven't got time to cover is what's happening in China at the moment. You know, the US is now starting to negotiate a new trade deal with Taiwan. Uh, that's obviously going to drive the Chinese berserk, um, as did uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit there a few weeks back within China itself. And I think this is where the real danger arises. There would appear to be significant problems arising. So, for example, extreme heat is triggering significant power shortages and coal production is being ramped up. We have the mortgage strike going on. People who bought houses and took out mortgages um, the, the houses were never built and they're still expected to pay mortgages. So that's a problem. We had a story um, very recently about another property construction company along the lines of Evergrande last year in serious financial difficulty. So there would appear to be a lot of very, very negative stuff blowing up in China at the moment. And when you get an authoritarian leader like Xi Jinping facing these sorts of internal pressures, there is always the temptation to go out there and do something bold on the international front. And in this case, the obvious option would be to attack Taiwan. So very, very dangerous. And, you know, you could certainly argue that Putin deflected a lot of attention away from uh, the mess he was making of his domestic economy and consequently went into Ukraine. So China as the world's second biggest economy, 
as still the world's most populated economy, but I think Italy is about, sorry, India is about to overtake it in terms of population. But when you see an economy of that size in these sorts of difficulties with the sort of leadership it has, uh, it does give cause for concern. Yeah, the Chinese thing, I think, has been summed up by leading commentators uh, in the following way, which is that Xi Jinping did a deal with the Chinese people, which is that you accept ever-increasing authoritarian rule from me and the Chinese Communist Party in exchange for rapid economic growth. And it's that latter bit that's disappearing. And so the bargain that was struck, because there isn't any economic growth anymore in China to speak of, certainly relative to where it was or relative to the promise that was made, now that the promise has been broken, the question I think you're posing, Jim, is what happens next? Will they simply pull all the levers and try and get the economy growing again? We saw an interest rate cut this week and the speculation about fiscal measures coming very soon. Uh, or will he just dial up the nationalist rhetoric and the action that flows from that, which points directly at Taiwan? So as yeah. you say, very worrying indeed. Absolutely. Okay, Chris, um, we leave it there. Um, I'm going to be away for the next two weeks. Um, heading to San Francisco. Um, there's one of our, a big fan of the podcast, Cathy Frawley, um, up in Santa Rosa, who cannot wait to um, see me over the next couple of weeks to talk about the podcast, obviously. So um, I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Uh, keep safe. Thanks, Jim. Have a great time. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 